Well, happy football day, everybody. Excited that you're here. Welcome to part two of a series we're calling uh, Prepared. It's a series we started last week, in case you missed it. Uh, you can go to the website, eastlaketricities.com slash talks. Uh, you can watch the video there, or if you do the podcast thing, iTunes, look for East Lake Tri-Cities and follow along. But we said uh, the idea behind the series is simply this. Uh, I feel an obligation to equip you uh, with really, really great one-liners and responses to things you believe. Because every once in a while, and by the way, I'm talking to home teamers, I'm talking to people who um, identify as, as Christians. If, if you're here as a guest and you're like, I'm not, I'm not there yet, like free past Sunday, no application, you get to just sit and observe and be like, okay, if I was to do that, that would be part of the kit and caboodle, and I don't know if I want to do that. That's great. But um, what we said was every once in a while, you'll, you'll come across things in life where people will say something about your religion, like take a shot, but not really like aggressive shot. It's not like persecution. It's just like, oh, you're like, a, like one of those Christians, huh? Right? You're like, you're, like, uh, you're like in the whole Bible thing, huh? And you're not really sure how to respond, and they, you're not really sure if they're listening in response or if it's just like they just want to make sure that you know that they know, that kind of thing, right? And there's not enough time, and, and, and there's very little attention, and, and um, it's not like they're asking for like a you know, six-part series about how you evolved, your faith, personal faith evolved. Well, I used to do this, and then I did this, and then you just wouldn't get into that. There's no time for that. Um, and so, unfortunately, we, we don't have great responses, so we just kind of like, uh, and we don't say anything sometimes, or then we, or then we say stuff and we say too much, and, we, and then we're like, it's not really what I believe, and I don't know, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. And I said... I mentioned last week that I've got a friend who's really, really good at one-liners that he, I feel like he develops them in his mind and then sits on them and then waits for the exact perfect moment. And when they come out, they feel like they came off the top of his head, but there's no possible way they came off the top of his head. He's been sitting on these. And I, I, I mentioned his name last week, I think in second. I don't even know if I mentioned him in first. Um, but his name's Jeremy. And, uh, and my favorite one that he always does is if we are ever sitting down at a restaurant table uh, and he accidentally kicks my foot uh, under, underneath the table. Now, typically I would say something along the lines of, oh, you played footsies with me or something like something stupid cliche like that, right? And his line is always, all, and it gets me every time. I'm just joking if you are. And I'm just like, I just die. I just, it's so funny to me. I'm just joking if you are. And he gives me this little look, right? And I'm like, see, you didn't come up with that right then. There's no possible way. You've been sitting on that, and it's so deep, and it's so great. And my favorite one, too, anytime we, we go into, like, a store, or, and he's checking out, and, and the, the, the lady at the front or whatever, whoever's taking him, checking him out would be like, so you want to pay debit or credit? And he's always like, credit, why pay now when I can pay later? And you can see on her, he says it every time, and you can see on her face, she thinks this guy is drowning in consumer debt. <laughs> And he's the most financially frugal guy I've ever met. And he's, he, but he, when he says it, he's got this like goofy little smile. Wipe it now and I can pay later. And he swipes his card. And I'm just like, I'm dying on the inside. I'm dying on the inside. And so here's the deal. I want to give you some one-liners when it comes to your faith. I want to equip, equip you with some things that, that you can now think of. It's well thought out. It's like this, this is going to spark some conversation. And it may, it may lead to further discussion, or at least it will be a solid enough answer for you to walk away and feel good about yourself when it comes to that. And I think it's biblical too, right? Because last week we looked at a, a, um, a correspondence that Peter wrote to the early church. Um, it was captured for us in the New Testament in, in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, and the verse simply says like this, uh, it, it goes, uh, always be prepared to give an answer or a defense to everyone who asks you to give you the reason for the hope that you have. So the, always be prepared, prepared, that's where we get this title for this thing, to give an answer. And again, it's not an answer that's like, you know, you got to have answers to all of the deep, dark questions. Why is there suffering in the world? Why, why is there two different Isaiahs? Why, why, is, why does it say one thing here and then another thing here? Um, why is there, there are two different feedings of, of the five? 
5,000, one's 5,000, but one's 4,000. What's that about? Why are there two different creation stories in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2? Why, why, why? And you're like, I don't know, I don't know. That's not what's going on here. This is a defense for the, to the, for the reason, for the hope that you have. It's far more personal than that. The question that's being asked is, why are you personally, why do you personally choose to follow Jesus? Because this, this, is, this is what you need to be prepared for. All the rest of that stuff, like there are answers out there and we can go there. And if they're genuinely asking, there are definitely tons of resources, tons of books. And you could be like, if I give you a podcast, will you read this book? Will you do this? We can get there. But this one needs to come off our tongue so natural. Why do you? In like 30 seconds or less, when, when interest is small and time is even shorter, what, how are you going to respond to this question right here? Why have you personally decided to follow Jesus? And if Peter said that this is important, then it would be important for us, like we said last week, to look at Peter's life. What would he say? And it, he, there's, there's, no, there's no like, okay, verse two says, when this is asked of you, here's what you should say. But what we look at when we look at the life of Peter is that over and over and over again, he points to one thing for him. The reason that I follow Jesus, for me, Peter, is because of the resurrection, Anytime he gets a chance in the book of Acts to stand and talk to people, uh, anytime he, in his writings through 1 Peter, all three of those chapters or whatever, um, there's, there's significant attention towards the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it would be like, think about it if you were Peter and you watched, you followed a Messiah around for three years. Um, he did some really public things. Um, he, you watched some healings take place. You watched him captivate the attention and, the, uh, and his audience for, for like in, in ways that you've never seen before. Um, then you watched him get arrested. You watched him die on a cross. You watched him be buried. You know that the Romans don't mess up on crucifixion. You, you, you know that he genuinely died. You went back to your work, and then three days later, you see him on a beach, and you guys have breakfast together. That would mess you up, okay? And so it makes sense for Peter to be like, I watched him die, and then we had breakfast on the beach three days later. I can't shake that. I, I'm, I'm, I will go to my death, and eventually he would. Christian tradition would say that he would eventually be crucified for what he believes. And in his crucifixion, um, he decided that I don't want to be crucified like my Savior. I'm not worthy of that. And so uh, the, the church tradition says that he was crucified upside down. He would die for his faith, not because of what he believed, but because of what he said he believed he saw. I saw a guy die, and I watched him like invite me to touch his hands. And I, I can't explain it. I just I go with the guy who beat death. And you would too, and I would too. And so, so that's been the response. And I think our response need to be fashioned similarly. I think it needs to go in that direction. When we're asked, why is it that you personally follow? The response I gave you last week that is, is a good kind of, this is well thought out, I feel like, is I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe that he rose from the dead. Now, there's a lot of different reasons for that. And we said there's, um, uh, there's, there's constant objections right away. Well, what about the weird stories in the Old Testament? What about the abuse of power in the institutional church over history? What about the, like, all the weirdo Christians that exist in the world? What about that pastor who ran off with the secretary and took the church money with him? All of those things. And you just be like, right, listen, listen, listen. I understand. There's a lot of stuff out there. I I can maybe get to those things, or we can talk about those things, and we can dialogue about those things, but when you boil it down to this one thing, I'm not a Christian because of other Christians. I believe he died for my sin, and he rose again. But wait, I said there's more, like an infomercial. I believe that Jesus died for my sin, rose from the dead, but I don't believe it because the Bible says so. It's so much better than that. And then I said at that point, you can leave it right there. You can start eating your chips, you know, like doing the whole, like, changing the conversation. If they want to take it further, that's a great one-line thing for you. That's a great spot to be at. So today, I want to talk about that exact 
second part of this phrase. I don't believe it because the Bible says so. I think it's so much better than that. I want to talk to you about how to talk about the Bible with people who may not take it as seriously as you do. This comes into play when people aren't asking, so you're like a Christian, you like do the whole church thing. This is when they come to you and be like, so that like the Bible thing, like you like believe all of that stuff, huh? Like the whole the whole thing, right? Like every, every verse, and, they're, and I'm not talking about like specific verses necessarily, but like the, in general, you, you like this Bible. So this is an important thing for us, right? And I, I even, guys, I brought down probably my best Bible that I own from my office. This never leaves my office, but for day, because for, I never, typically in an average week, I don't want to intimidate you with the size of my Bible. Be like, oh, his is so much bigger than mine. I, I would rather just leave that up there, and I bring down a little junior Bible, which is great. Everybody feels like, oh, I could read that, right? So this is a little bit different in this way. Now, I want to talk to you about this whole thing, because if you have ever felt like, I feel like I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm pro-Bible, like, Brent, I want you to talk about it when I, show, when I take time out of my week to come on a Sunday morning, and I do the whole get the kids ready, and we're leaving early, and, and I could have been doing a lot. I could have been preparing for the Super Bowl, Brent, but I'm here at church, I, and I want you to talk about the Bible. Like, you value it. You, you want me to talk about it, which is great. I totally get it. So we are going to talk about the significance of how to talk about this and how we treat this. Now, if you get confused today, it's not your fault, all right? There's going to be a little bit of, uh, there's going to be a lot going on here. I'm going to try and best to weave the story. But if you walk away being like, I got lost, that's not your fault. That's my fault. I'm going to try my best to do this. But some of you grew up like me in an environment that even if you didn't go to church, your family, your dad or your grandpa or you personally have taken, you take the Bible seriously in its entirety. It's amazing how many people I've met who would say, I'm not really religious, I don't go to church, but don't you dare talk bad about the Bible, right? We're super protective of this. And when we hear people, when we hear in in the media or in the world or whatever, well, this part, that's kind of old, that's not really relevant anymore, and that doesn't make sense, and there's there's things going on in this, there's there's an author who wrote this book that exposes all of these falsehoods about the Bible. We get real defensive real fast, right? So I totally get that. And it has gone, there's been like an evolution in our life for some of us. Um, that has gone from, we grew up in an environment where the Bible was termed infallible, right? If you've ever heard that word or you've been to a church before and the pastor said, the word of God is infallible, meaning it cannot lead you to any falsehood. There's nothing, um, there's, there's no way that, uh, that, that anything in here would lead you to any falsehood. Or another word is inerrancy. It's infallible and it's inerrant. It can never be deemed false. There's never going to be some archaeological discovery that's going to be like, see, and they were wrong, right? And there's nothing in here that's wrong. So if it says a certain date or if it said a certain thing that happened, that's when it happened. And if we're like, well, but we have all of these findings over here. Well, somebody played a game over there. That's not real. Somebody manufactured those archaeological findings or discoveries, and this is, I'm going to hold on to this. So that can be kind of the heritage that we come from, infallible, inerrant. And then at some point, for some of you, it transitioned. You went to college, you read a book, you met somebody who talked you through some things. You had a a college professor or whatever who began poking holes in your philosophy of the importance and the relevancy and the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. And it began to feel almost indefensible at points. Or you felt inadequate to be able to defend it. 
Or maybe you are an outsider right now and you look at it and you're like, I like the church thing. I like the whole like environment thing. I, got, I like what you guys have going on, but like how, how strictly do you hold on to these things? Is your Facebook feed nothing but a bunch of verses on there? Is there always a response to this? Is it, it, whenever somebody comes to you with some sort of a, hey, I got this thing that I'm going through, well, keep your head up. After all, Proverbs says, and you're like, I just want conversation. You know what I mean? It feels indefensible at some points or inapplicable. Or it begins to feel like, well, there's some things we get to start begin to pick and choose on. So the dialogue can go something like this. Uh, I believe in the Bible is God's word. Um, doesn't it say that parents are supposed to stone rebellious children and burn immoral women? Yeah, but we don't really do that because that's indefensible, right? So you believe it, you just don't obey it. Well, that's the Old Testament. Oh, so you don't do the old stuff, just the new stuff. So you have the freedom to be able to pick and choose what you want to do. Well, I think you should probably go now because I'm done with this conversation because it's indefensible and it feels inapplicable. So here's some great news. If this is hitting a little bit close to home for you, whether um, you felt like it is indefensible and inapplicable at times, or you're on the aggressor side of things being like, yeah, that's exactly what I believe in. That's exactly why I haven't been in church in four years or whatever. Um, uh, The great news about this, and we did a series on this, by the way, a full series that's going to dive into more of this. I'm going to take a little bit of a different angle today, but um, if you go back on our talks website, Irresistible was a a church series on on what do we do do with with this Bible thing. But in that series, and every year at Easter, I talk about how the foundation of our faith is not in a book, as good as this book is, and as as inspirational and as important as it is. And I'm not saying throw this thing out. I'm saying as good as it is, the foundation of our faith has never been about a book. It's always been about an event. So what I want to do today is take a, a few parts about perspectives of why, um, why even though our foundation of our faith is an event and not a book, why the Bible is still important for us, okay? All right. So that you can be prepared when somebody says to you, well, what about the Bible? What about this? And if you thought about why, why would you ever believe this? I want you to have a solid one-liner to be able to say. All right. So... We're going to start in the Old Testament, and we'll go over to the New Testament. The re- here's my premise. Here's my thesis right away, right? The reason that Christians take the Old Testament seriously is because Jesus did. The reason I think that you should take the Old Testament seriously, which, by the way, is like two-thirds of your scripture, and it's got like the Genesis part, which is a great story, and it moves kind of all through the people of Israel and how they did all this kind of stuff, and it's very much about the history of the people of Israel and God's covenant relationship with them, which we said in the Irresistible series is not a covenant with us. It's different in that way. So why would we ever read material that's not relevant to us? Well, because I really do think that when you look at the life and the teachings of Jesus, he seemed to take the Old Testament somewhat or pretty seriously. Not, not somewhat seriously, really seriously. In fact, and I, and I know this isn't how it worked for you. Like when you became a Christian, when you decided to follow Jesus, it wasn't because somebody gave you the book of Genesis and you're like, oh, this is great. What else do you have? And then they gave you the book of Exodus and you're like, this is really cool. And then they gave you a little bit because you're like, nothing in there. And then you know, Numbers and Deuteronomy, nothing in there. Joshua's finally exciting again. Judges is great. And then all of a sudden you got to the end of the book of Malachi, which is the end of the Old Testament. You're like, oh, oh my gosh, I'm a Jew right? And then, and then you said, is there anything more? Well, 400 years of silence, and then all of a sudden, here's Matthew, and here's Mark, and here's Luke, and all this stuff. That's not how it worked for you, probably, okay? If it did, that's a unique route. You get a free pass for Sunday. I don't care what you do. Start doing something different. Probably, for the most part, you were inspired 
at first, and in awe of the person and the teachings of Jesus, then you thought, maybe he's a really great teacher I should form my life after. Or, or then you believed, then at some point it crossed over into, I really do believe that he was genuinely the son of God, and therefore God's mouthpiece to this world. So his, his words are most important over anybody's words. I should probably listen to him. So you were infatuated with Jesus, and then somebody gave you a book, probably not as big as this one, because that would be intimidating, but they gave you a book, and they said, here's the background on who Jesus was, what kind of a culture he came from, and what he, why what he says has meaning and, and, and applicability and all of this kind of stuff. They gave you this as a resource to help better understand who Jesus was. And when we look at Jesus in his text and, and, and we look at the gospel writings and what he said, he actually built up the Old Testament. He says specifically in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to take all this away. As a Jew, I didn't come to wipe away everything that's Jewish. I came to fulfill it. I came to maximize it. I came to make sense of this. And over time, then later on, he would say even things like, when you understand who I am, you will better understand or more correctly or properly understand all of the things contained in the law. So he, he has a real high approach to this Old Testament. I think he takes it seriously. Therefore, we should take it seriously. When he spoke of um, Old Testament characters, he spoke of Adam and Eve as if they actually existed. He spoke of Moses as if he was an actual person and Abraham as he actually lived, not metaphors of this, metaphors of a leader of a people group that was created in the imaginative to help guide a people through making sense of who they were. He actually believed that they existed. He referenced Jonah, a sign of Jonah, as if he actually existed, not like, you know, that metaphorical symbolic Jonah in the Old Testament. That's not what he said. He treated it as if it was seriously. Now, does that help us like ex explain everything about this? Does that help us explain seven days of creation versus seven periods versus evolution? No, 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 no. All that is still, we, that's, that's all dialogue. We can, we can work through some of that. But Jesus took it seriously. So therefore, the reason, if somebody goes up to you and be like, you, like, you believe that Old Testament stuff? Well, I can't just throw it out. Jesus seemed to take it seriously. And I follow Jesus. So I got to figure out what that means and looks like for me. He even leveraged Old Testament texts to make points. In Matthew chapter 19, he says, haven't you read, he replied, at the beginning, the creator God made them male and female. He talks about marriage in this way. And when he talks about marriage, he doesn't bring up somebody who's like, hey, this is Craig and Martha, and they have a great marriage, guys. And don't you wish you could be like them? This is so great, right? He points back to the very beginning of this and says, this was God's institution from the very beginning. He leverages an example in the Genesis story about this as to why this is important. So yeah, there's some crazy stuff in there, no doubt, but Jesus took it seriously, so that makes me think that I should take it seriously. Now, that is a great one-liner for you when questioned about Old Testament stuff. But what I did, if you noticed, is I drew it as quickly as I could to the person of Jesus. I mentioned this last week, like don't get caught up in the weeds. This whole thing is about Jesus. So as quickly as possible, I've taken it from an Old Testament context and pointed it towards the, in, uh, the completely defensible, excuse me, not indefensible, the completely defensible person of Jesus. Now, a quick objection if you were listening closely. Since the Bible is the only source that we have about what Jesus said, Jesus didn't write any books, right? Everything that, was, everything that we know about Jesus um, was written from the gospel writers, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then what Paul says about him, what Peter says about him, and some of the epistles later, but everything that we have about it was written in the New Testament. And if you're saying that you're using the words of Jesus to justify taking seriously the Old Testament, you're basically using Scripture to validate itself. Um, you're just using the Bible to prove the Bible, which is basically, Brent, a very common error that you've painted yourself into the corner of circular reasoning. All you've done, and Brent, I thought you were way smarter than that, all right? No wonder you're bringing in a professor next Friday. I totally get that now. All right, that's not what I'm doing. Then we're gonna talk about this, all right? The word Bible comes from the Latin word te biblia, which comes from a Greek interpretation of a word that simply means books, the books, the collection of books. And you've heard me say this a hundred times if you've been coming to Eastlake for any length of time. The Bible isn't a book, it is a collection of books. In fact, not even really books, collection of ancient documents, some of them letters, some of them like memoirs basically. And all of these ancient texts existed before they were bound into what you and I call Holy Scriptures or Bible or whatever it is that you want to call it. And then a few years after uh, that, they would all add, or they would add in the Jewish Scriptures that it, it would come to its present form known to us as the Bible. So before this existed as a Bible, it existed as individual documents. Then the church at some point goes, this is great. There's a lot of documents out there. Let's select the ones that we know to be reliable. Let's pattern them together into the Christian Scriptures. And that existed for a while. And then they, like us, said, well, Jesus took some of the Old Testament seriously. There are some things that are referenced both by the apostles and by Jesus, like reaching back into, you've heard it said, but I tell you this, it would probably be important to include the original context of these. So they patched the Jewish scriptures, much to the chagrin of the Jews, into the New Testament early church scriptures, and that became known as the Bible. But that would not come onto the scene for about 400 years after the crucifixion of Christ. In other words, Christian don't, Christians don't believe the gospel stories are reliable because they're in the Bible. So Brent, you're only using the Bible to justify the Bible. No, 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 that's not what I'm doing. I don't think that these books are important. I don't think that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are important because they're in the Bible. They were included by the early church because they were considered credible and reliable at the time. Their position in the Bible doesn't make them special, they were considered special, so that's why they included them in the Bible. Now, for example, let me, let me give you a quick illustration uh, in this way. I took English 101 at CBC back, I don't even want to tell you how many years ago, okay? Uh, Mr. Matasius was the teacher, and we had to go buy books for this class. And one of them was an English literature book that was, I swear to you, 700 pages long. It was the, one of the thickest books I'd ever bought. It filled my entire backpack. I had like changed my backpack out in between classes just so I could fit that thing in there. I took it into this class, and I remember we read four stories out of that book. And I thought to myself, why in the world did I buy this book for four, and, excuse me, why in the world did my parents buy this book <laughs> for four short stories in this scenario. And I was doing Running Start at the time, so therefore it's okay. that it's, Don't judge me, all right? My parents bought my books for, for, for those two years at CBC. It's, it's all good, right? Judge me if you want. I don't care. We read four stories totaling maybe 80 pages out of six or 700 plus. And, I, and I, now I wish I still had that book, but I didn't. I sold it back to the bookstore for $1.25 Canadian. And now I've got no books in that way. Um, and imagine if I had said to this teacher, 
Like, why are you making us read this? First of all, why, why are you feeding in this broken system of textbooks from the, the school bookstore? And number two, why these stories, why this scenario? And the teacher might respond with, oh, but these are the best short stories in English literature. Do you know what makes these stories great? They're in this collection. They made this book. That would be ridiculous. The reason that they're great is because they're in this book. That's not at all the case. They were great before they were included in this collection. The reason that they're in this collection is because they're great. That's how collections work. These are so great, let's capture them all together so people don't have to buy 20 books. They can just buy one book and get it all at once. That's the mentality of this sort of thing. In the same exact way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John aren't great or authoritative because they're in the Bible. They were recognized as such before there was ever a New Testament. They were included in the collection for two primary reasons. Number one is who wrote them. And number two is when they were written. The reason they were considered credible, reliable, we got to include these for all time, is because of who wrote them. Those authors had special access to things that not everybody else would. Many of them were direct disciples of Jesus. Um, Luke was not a direct disciple, but he knew people that that were. um, uh, Same thing uh, uh, with, with, well, Matthew was one of his disciples. Matthew was one of his closest ones. John was one of his favorite, Peter, James, and John. Like, these guys had unique access. They If we're going to take, anytime you buy a biography of somebody that's really famous, like the best information comes from the people who were in the band or a part of the team or the coach of the team, or they had access to them. Not like I studied everything and here's what I know. I want to know personal stories in this way. They knew that they were them. So, uh, but then the second part, and I want to focus on this second part for the rest of our time today. When they were written is so incredibly important. There's an important date that I want you to log away in your brain, and maybe you've heard of this date before, and if you're not, if you're, not, if you're a Christian, this is an important date that you need to have like, really a- available, especially when it comes to defending the, the Bible, because if, if you're using um, the, the New Testament to justify Jesus, to justify the Old Testament, then you're going to want this date in hand to kind of justify uh, this from a historical, reasonable standpoint, all right? The date is A.D. 70, and it's known as the fall of Jerusalem, or depending on where you look, uh, the first Jewish-Roman war or uh, the, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name. The Great Revolt, there it is. The Great Revolt. This is like Roman history. You Wikipedia this if you want. In fact, if you type the word notes in or you get the notes feed or go to eastlakechristcities.com slash notes, this week on those feeds, I included some links to some research that kind of dives into this. So if this is all interesting to you and I didn't go far enough into it, you can follow along uh, in that way. So, But I'm gonna walk through some details of this because in about 66 AD, tensions begin to arise around the religious freedom and the taxation from Rome on Jerusalem. Remember that the Roman Empire is big at this point. Uh, Jerusalem and Israel finds itself kind of on the fringes of the empire. They're the ones that like, we're gonna take your taxes, but we're not going to have an active presence. We're going to basically send kind of uh, small groups of Roman soldiers, the centurions of some people, and they're going to handle some things. And if, if things get bad, then we'll send forces in to kind of clear things up. That's exactly what takes place. There's some unrest going on and Jews begin fighting back. They begin to feel like uh, there's enough religious prohibitions going on and we're sick of paying taxes that you can party in Rome while we suffer over here. So they begin in small pockets attacking Roman soldiers and attacking Roman citizens and causing some serious unrest. 
uh, in this way. The pro-Roman king Herod Agrippa flees Jerusalem, fearing for his safety, and begins to alert Rome. So in this scenario, he, he, he escapes thinking, my life is in danger, sends word to Rome, there's an uprising taking place, you're going to need to send in some forces. Nero, the famous emperor Nero, sends in a military general named Vespasian to quell the rebellion. His son Titus is now second in command. So Vespasian is sent in, Titus is second-hand man, which is his son. They invade Galilee and take out many strongholds around Jerusalem. They're on their way down to Jerusalem, but on the way, they know that there are different pockets of like a stronghold. And if we can take out this and we take out their weapons, if we can take out this and we take out their food supply, and like really smart generals, because that's exactly what they were, they don't just dive in and attack Jerusalem. They go off in all these places. But what happens in the process is um, as these towns are kind of taken, uh, these strongholds are kind of taken, some people escape and they begin to huddle in Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes like the, the catch-all for everybody. And Jerusalem has a big giant wall around it. So they come in and they begin to barricade themselves in and then they build two additional walls to kind of structure this thing out to be able to be what they feel like are safe. The Romans show up, they begin to batter through the first wall, no problem. They go through the second wall, no problem. But it comes to the third one, it's a little bit difficult. And they end up realizing it's not really worth, us to, worth it for us to lose forces in this process. We are going to wait them out. So they attempt what's called the siege of Jerusalem. They don't know this at first, but this siege is going to last for three years. For three years, the Roman soldiers are going to be out surrounding this thing with one wall in between them thinking, well, they're going to run out of water soon. They're going to run out of food soon. And they're just going to open up their ears. Why in the world would we risk our lives when a Eventually, they're just going to open up our doors and surrender to us. What they didn't know was there's a water supply under the, the under the. Um, it's a really there's an interesting history here too. There's a water supply underneath the city that they didn't know about. They couldn't dig under the walls for some reason. Uh, and and there's the, the, all. So this thing lasted for so long for three years. In the meantime. Emperor Nero dies, and, Emperor, uh, and Vespasian, the military general who's down laying the siege in Jerusalem, is anointed as the new emperor of Rome. He leaves Jerusalem to go back up to Rome and leaves his son Titus in charge. And you can imagine the words of advice from a father to a son, a father who is now entering into this very public, very glory-driven uh, thing about to his son, hey, make sure that you take care of this. This is kind of a blight on my record. I've been successful everywhere else. Don't let this end in failure. Get this thing done quick. So Vespasian goes up, Titus takes over, aggression start to get a little bit more aggressive. They begin to, they finally, they're so weak and the people have, have uh, the morale of the people has weakened. Uh, they're, they're dying on the inside. They can see they've, what they've done for the last six months is hung any Jew that they can find on the outside on these galleys that they built to kind of send the message like, this is your future. This is what's gonna happen to you. So morale is at an all-time low. They finally break through, and Josephus, a Jewish historian, but he sided with the Romans. He got caught and then converted and became one of the most famous um, Jewish historians ever writes this about what he saw because he was there. He was friends with Vespasian. He was friends with Titus. And in his, like you can like buy the works of Josephus at Barnes and Noble today if you want to and read this in, in one of his letters. The slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were honed down in indiscriminate carnage. The legionaries had to clamor over heads of the dead to carry on the work of extermination. Objective genocide in this scenario. Why? Because they've been waiting for two and a half years to do this. 
They have spent two and a half years out in probably tents in the heat in the summer and the freezing cold of the winter. And they're sick and tired and there's been probably words that have been exchanged. And at some point that hatred just spills over. And when they went in, they destroyed everything. Josephus claims that over a million Jews died. Historians don't think, they think he probably exaggerated that number. Probably, probably no more than 300,000. Here's what they do know. They're guessing at these numbers, but here's what they do know is that 97,000 Jews entered into the slave markets almost immediately following this war. And anytime you want to have accurate numbers about anything, you always look at pocketbooks and expense accounts, right? So this is, they, they go to this and they realize this flooded the market in this way. The prices of slaves adjusted because of this thing taking place. The temple was burned and no more temple meant no more sacrifice. And this essentially meant that ancient Judaism ceased to be in, the, in August of AD 70. It's an important date. It's a big deal. They ripped the stones down in the temple communicating, you will never rebuild this temple because we believe the temple is at the epicenter of your rebellion against Rome. And it was was never rebuilt and it still isn't rebuilt. If you go to Jerusalem today, and I went when I was 16, my parents took me, you can go to what's known as the Wailing Wall. This is the last Jewish kind of standpoint. This is their last uh, little area that they feel like was kind of original to them. Everything else is destroyed. There's the dome on the rock, but that's an Islam thing. Everything else is just a temple plaza and they are waiting, waiting, waiting for another temple to be built in 2019. And it and in, in the last time it stood firmly was A.D. 70, in August of A.D. 70, and it's taken down. Titus, then after this, goes back to Rome. His father dies. Vespasian dies. Titus becomes emperor. He gets sick and he dies. It happens. His brother Domitian becomes the emperor. To honor his brother, builds him an arch. It's known as the Titus Arch. And if you go to Rome today, around the corner from the Colosseum, you might see this Titus Arch. It's one of the biggest arches that became an inspiration for the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. And that little inscription on the top, I'll read it for you in case you're not good, not brushed up on your Latin. The Roman Senate, and I'm not either, I Googled it, don't worry. The Roman Senate and people dedicate this to the divine Titus Vespasianus, Augustus, son of the divine Vespasian. Built in about 84 AD, about 12 to 14 years after the siege had ended and the brutal thing, they decided to come back. And after he dies, Domitian and all of his advisors sit around in a circle and they talk about how can we honor this valiant warrior who did so much for Rome? Let's honor the most significant thing he did as a Roman general. Remember the war that he had with the Jews? Remember how like even, even Vespasian was struggling with this and it was two and a half years and it was brutal and it was whatever. Let's remember that. Let's build an arch in honor of that. Now, if you ever go to Rome and you ever go to the Colosseum and you walk through this arch, and I highly recommend that you do, if you look up underneath the arch, underneath the archway on the different sidewalls of that thing, you'll see this exact scene right here, which is what? It's a triumph, which basically means it's the men coming back from war, carrying the spoils of war. Typically, there would be, um, they would capture some slaves if it was sort of a more peaceful attack. Or in this case, there was no bodies because they killed everybody. So they bring back items from the temple. Look at what they're bringing right there. What is that? It's a Jewish menorah right there, right on top. In 84 AD, they bring this back and they say, we conquered the Jews and here's what we have to bring back in this way. Now, why in the world, in defense of the Bible, would I ever talk about this sad, sad story in Jewish history? Here's why. There is absolutely no mention 
of this war against the Jews or the destruction of the Jewish temple in the New Testament. Not one mention about it. Now, one would think that would be something you write about. You, you couldn't write a history of the American government without bringing up some significant things. There, there would be no complete history of American government without talks about the Civil War, right? Or Martin Luther King. Or uh, pick, any, pick any of these massive things that have, you know, did not uh, completely dominated our history and taken years and big significant stories. That would not be absent or it would be incomplete, or somebody would come out and be like, how did you not think about mentioning this? How could you not reference something as significant as a three-year siege where everybody's destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and, every, and basically modern day, or ancient Judaism is completely done? There's no temple sacrifice, and if no sacrifices are being made, then that God doesn't exist, and this is it. The only logical answer for that is that it probably hadn't happened yet. The reason that the destruction of the temple isn't talked about in this is because it probably hadn't happened yet. Because if it had happened, it would make sense for New Testament authors to leverage the destruction of the temple. After all, at one point, Jesus stands in front of people and says, see this temple? I'm going to destroy it in three days and I'm going to rebuild it, right? And everybody's like, oh, okay. You would think to validate the person of Jesus, somebody would say, remember when Jesus said that and then it happened? It builds the story better for Jesus if you actually say this. Not to mention, Christians at this point are trying to differentiate themselves from the Jews in this way. So this idea of, you know, kind of we win a little bit, would you think that would show up? The whole sacrificial system. Hebrews talks about Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice, as the sacrifice that ends all sacrifice. We don't need to do the animal sacrificial system anymore because we have Jesus. You would think if you believe that, you would leverage this and be like, and by the way, we can't even do the sacrificial system if we wanted to because the temple no longer exists. All right, so the, the only logical really example or the only logical reason it doesn't show up in the New Testament because it would make so much sense for it to is that it hadn't happened yet, which means that New Testament writings were probably written before AD 70. And they write about Jesus' crucifixion, which we know from Roman history took place in about 32 or 33 AD, which leaves us a window of opportunity for these things to be written. Somewhere between 32, 33 AD and 70 AD. Why is that important? Here's why that's important. That is so close to the actual events that are being described. There is no real legitimate room for them to make up something that somebody wouldn't be like, hey, that's not how it happened. Why? Because legends don't happen while eyewitnesses are still alive. You don't make stuff up that people who were there for could be like, that's not how it worked. You can do that when it's 100 years later, 80 years later, 200 years. Historians talk about this length of legacy opportunities, right? That, 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 yeah, there are some things that history can be makeshifted into whatever they want, but it doesn't really happen until about 100 years after it occurred because in that time frame, there's just too much evidence to go contrary to it. Norman Geisler is a uh, theologian. He writes a lot of books. He predicted... That at some point, here's what he said, I'll just read it. As the last Holocaust survivors die, a theory will surface somewhere in the world that the Holocaust never happened, but it won't surface 
until the final Holocaust survivors are dead. In other words, and we've, guys, we've even seen this recently. Yeah, they kind of made that up. And there's some of us that go, no, 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 no. Like, I've been to the museum. I've seen it. Some of you maybe have gone to Germany, gone to Auschwitz, gone to this. You've walked in there. You've sensed it. You've felt it. There are, there are so many things right now that make you feel like it genuinely happened. And there are things that I can point to. There are people that we can talk to. But guys, all of the Holocaust survivors are getting really old or are already dead. Those are being gone. And Jews are so afraid. Listen, <coughs> rightfully so. They are so afraid that eventually history will be like, nah. Maybe Hitler wasn't that bad of a person. Maybe it wasn't that bad. I mean, 6 million Jews, come on, come on, come on, come on. Maybe like 600,000, that's a lot more palatable than the atrocity of 6 million, which is why they're so aggressive in saying, don't forget, don't forget. Let's build these museums. Let's build these things. See all these empty shoes? These were all the kids that died in the Holocaust. Why is that important? In this time frame, we can't think it's possible. Like, we just, like, it's just so, like, even, like, September 11th stuff. Like, we know it happened. At some point, there's going to be, and I guess there's theories, conspiracy theories out there. Like, ah, it's all, but nobody denies that it happened, right? They just don't deny who did it or whatever. But, uh, but you're talking about legends that can develop over time. Now, the, the thing about this is, there are a lot of crazy things about this. And, and Jesus' resurrection that's a really implausible, improbable, hard to get your mind wrapped around thing. It would make sense if that showed up 100, 150 years after it happened. Be like, well, yeah, of course they're going to make up the scenario about how their, their Messiah who got captured and like turned out to not be really Messiah rose from the dead. That's a really unique twist in the story. It's a nice swerve. Good job, guys. But that's not what happened. Because it didn't show up in AD 70, because none of that language shows up, the most logical answer is it was written within about a 30 to 40 year period after the events occurred. And in that short time frame, guys, it does not make sense to write about a guy who died and rose from the dead. So when it comes to this, listen, I believe the Old Testament is true because Jesus talked about it being true. I believe that Jesus actually existed because of, not because the New Testament, because he's in the New Testament. I believe it because I cannot deny the testimony of a guy named Matthew, a guy named Mark, a guy named Luke, and a guy named John, Peter, and Paul, and, and, and James, his brother, for goodness sake. All of these things, I cannot deny. I believe the Old, Old Testament should be taken seriously because God took it, or Jesus took it seriously. And I take Jesus seriously because of what Matthew said about him, what Mark said about him, Luke said about him, John, Peter, James, and Paul, all of these things. This right here. You believe the whole Bible thing? Like, so you like the Bible thing. You're into that. Well, listen, I can't just get rid of the Old Testament. And what the scenario is like the actual real life evidence about what the New Testament authors say about Jesus. I can't shake it. I don't believe the things about Jesus because they're in the Bible. I just look at this, consider this information, consider this evidence. And one more quick reason, I think this is important. I'm closing with this. Some of you right now are in a season where God is not answering your prayer and you're beginning to doubt because the foundation of your faith has always been about personal experience. And as soon as I started going to church, life got good. Um, and now life's not good. And so now I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is real, right? Your foundation of your faith has been an, an experience. Guys, this is why this foundation of our faith in an event in the person of Jesus is so much better. I think personal experience with God is awesome. I think, can, I think God can and does do incredible things, even miracles in the lives of people. But that's not a great foundation for our faith. 
Because that can kind of come and go, and you can go through a really crappy season of life and be like, my faith is shaken. Well, that's the, the problem with that is your faith was founded upon an event or a feeling. The foundation of our faith isn't a feeling, and it's not a book. It's an event, and the reason I think it's true is because the reason I can look at this and be like, this is important for us, is because Jesus took it seriously, and because of what I know about Jesus, based on the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and all the rest of those guys. It's not a book. It's not a feeling. It's an event, and it's a person, and it's so much more than that. Let's pray. Father, our prayer as we wrestle through this, and man, we threw out a lot of dates and a lot of things in history and whatever, and maybe hopefully we kept us awake for all that. I, I just, we get to it, and then it begins to make so much sense for us. Like, it, it points to us and be like, okay, yeah, maybe it, maybe it is real. Jesus wasn't like this inspirational figure, but historical, actually came, actually died, actually rose again. And, and, and we look at this, and, and, and what does that mean for us? That means so much. That means that the God that we kind of think maybe exists out there somewhere made himself known to us through the person of Jesus and therefore deserves our attention, deserves our focus, deserves our allegiance, and deserves me pledging my life and my efforts and my activity towards following in the footsteps that he laid out for us. So let us never falter to the point where we begin to throw out our faith because somebody pokes holes in our belief systems about what the Bible is or what it stands for, what, it, what these truths are, whatever. Be like, I, whatever, I, I don't know, I don't know. I continue to have faith in some things. I continue to press forward through some things. I wanna study. I don't wanna check my brain at the door. I totally get that. But ultimately, it's never been about that. It's always been about Jesus. Help that to sink into the hearts and the minds of every single one of us, and myself included. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life, the courage to act on it in your name.